0: Hello, we're Scott and Maureen Proctor and this is Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast, where today we're going to be studying Deuteronomy chapters six through eight, 15, 18, 29 through 30, and 34. And we have with us a special guest today to discuss this.
1: We're so glad to have Dr. Carrie Muelstein with us again. This is so fun to be able to discuss these things with him. He has spent uh, a lifetime a career uh, studying these things teaching these things spending time in the middle east enjoying seeing these things open up to his mind and heart and we're so grateful to be able to discuss these things with him today Uh, carrie is the author of a number of books including god will prevail which maureen and i have both read and love and also one of my favorites is i saw the lord which is a book about the First Vision, but Carrie took the nine different accounts of the First Vision and kind of put them into one flowing text of the First Vision. I absolutely love it. I've read it a number of times and just enjoyed so much his insights into the First Vision. And as we begin this discussion today, Carrie, uh, we start in Deuteronomy, and it looks like we have a lot of chapters to study and the church curriculum seems to think that this uh, Deuteronomy must be pretty important if we're going to study all these chapters. Deuteronomy itself is a really important book, isn't it? It is. It's it's one of the most important books we
2: can study. In in some ways, Deuteronomy is the summary of uh, everything from, in some ways, Genesis 12 through the end of Numbers, certainly Exodus through Numbers. This is Moses summarizing uh, the covenant and the process that Israel has gotten through uh, to be a covenant people and what the covenant is and what they need to do about it. So it's really important for them at that stage in life. This is really Moses' valedictory address. They're about to go into the promised land. He's going to leave them behind. This is really important for them. But it's equally important for us as a covenant people who are trying to embark on building a Zion society to have this wonderful summation of what it means to be a covenant people and the journey that it takes to really be covenant keepers.
0: Well, so this Deuteronomy chapter 6 has some extremely important verses, and uh, 4 through 9 are really matter, and let's just read the first couple. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, And with all thy might. Now, this is beautiful and important to all of us. So let's talk for just a minute about why this particularly matters to the Jews.
2: Yeah, and let's say to the Jews, but it should matter to us as well. Uh, I I hope it's as meaningful for us as it is for them. So, and if it's all right, hopefully I can uh, remember this correctly, but I'd just love to read it the way that our, our Jewish friends would. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, right? And that's something that they will say again and again and again. Uh, and you, you get this idea, I said Adonai, uh, it, it really is Jehovah that it says there, but uh, the Jews, out of respect for the name of the Lord, how, how important that is, how much they should reverence it and not take it in vain, um, don't say that name. And so they substitute it, sometimes they'll substitute the word Shem, which really means name, so, for instance, uh, this year's youth theme, uh, trust in the Lord, is often said, betach Bashem, trust in the name. That's just their way of saying trust in, in Jehovah without saying that, that name. Uh, but most often they substitute the word Adonai, which means Lord as in master, uh, or the, the person who you swear fealty to, this person who is over you. And so they're saying here, Israel, that, that the Lord or Jehovah is, is uh, our God, uh, and he is one. There are no others. There, there is no one else to worship. There is nothing else that should take that place in your heart. So if we go back to, to our discussion that we had when we talked about the Ten Commandments and the fact that you have no other gods before God, that uh, nothing else prevails more in your life, uh, this should be the creed of your life. This should be Uh, the thing that you think of all the time. I worship God and nothing else. I love God more than anything else. Nothing compares with the place that he has in my heart. Uh, And that's really what is is at the core here, and that's what they're supposed to uh, think of uh, constantly and be reminded of constantly, and it's what we should be reminded of constantly, that there is only one thing, one, I shouldn't say thing, but one being uh, but in a way, I mean thing, because sometimes we, we put things above God, and what a silly tragedy that is in our lives, but sometimes we do it. But there should be only one being that has that spot in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives.
0: So what does it mean, then, to love God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might? It seems like it's with all your emotions, all your will, all your intellect, everything you have to give, you are you give to worship God and love Him, love Him. That's what I like, the loving connection we have.
2: Yeah, and this is, of course, we're familiar with this verse in its uh, New Testament iteration, because when they ask uh, the Savior, what's the most important commandment in the, in the law? Now, keep in mind that keeping the commandments is our primary obligation under the covenant. So what they're really asking Him is, what is the most important thing we have to do in the covenant? And the Savior just asks them, well, what do you think? And of course they go to this verse this is again the foundational the identity verse for covenant israel so that should be anciently in the savior's day in moses's day it should be in our day Uh, this should be our identity is that we are someone who loves god um and let's kind of break these words up and it might help us understand uh when the savior quotes it at least the way we get it in greek and i'm sure he was speaking in aramaic Uh, So this may not end up being exactly, uh, you know, we we have to to take this with a grain of salt. But he adds in um, mind, right? So we have here in Deuteronomy, Love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. But the Savior adds in with all thy mind and all thy might. And we'll look at perhaps why that is as as we go along here. But um, this idea that more than anything else, we love the Lord, uh, with our heart and I think you're right that this is um, uh, it, it's, it's the heart symbolizes emotions right what you what you feel um, what, what uh, just your, your passions everything about what you feel all right um, and then we get uh, this phrase uh, with all thy soul uh, and and that really is the word for for soul uh it's uh, nefesh is the hebrew word and it's uh, it, it's who you are inside so when i say soul in some ways i mean your spirit um but in some ways it's it's more than your spirit it's it's uh who you are what you are uh what, what just you know your, everything you think everything you you feel who you are and so this is part of where we're going to get that mind coming in is uh, that that your spirit has to do with who you are and how you think about things but the interesting word is the one that is translated as might Uh, and i think that that uh, it's just a little difficult to know how to translate this word the word is me'od and that's the word you use like for for much or very right so uh like if i were going to say i'm very good i'm tov ma'od uh, I, I, or, you know, if I do something very much, I say ma'od. So if we're going to literally translate this, we'd say with all your muchness, with all your variness, right? Um, it's And I think it's a way of saying with all uh, uh, that you are and more, when you're at your most, when you're at, at the, as much as you can be. So if it's your, your heart and your soul slash mind, uh, at their very most that they can be, that's what you worship God with. So that might is that that the, uh, the the strength or the I guess the volume, the the intensity that uh, we need to do the other things with the the soul and mind and and heart. Uh, we should love God with that. So. Uh, For example, and I'll just say in in my book on the covenant, uh, God Will Prevail, there's a paragraph in there that I feel I was the most inspired when I wrote it, and I I should probably have pulled it out so I could quote it exactly, but uh, I have in there a phrase that I feel like encapsulates. It's my my favorite paragraph I've written, I think, where uh, it encapsulates this, and I, and I, I can kind of paraphrase it here, but it says something about that this should be the identity of a covenant keeper. It's the essence of who we are, the the heart of how we think of ourselves, and our very identity is someone who loves God. It should define who we are.
0: It seems to me like that is something that grows inside of us. It's not like when we're little children. We love the Lord when we're little children, but we haven't had much experience but as we have experience with him, we're more able to love him because we remember that when we knelt at the very limits of our endurance, he was there. We remember that he comforted us. We remember that he, his presence changed our lives. And as we have that accumulation of experiences, we love him and we are more able to keep his commandment to love him with all those facilities.
2: I think one of the wonderful things is that he increases our capacity to love, to love everyone, including himself. And so that love, for all the reasons you just said, and for the reasons that like the joy we feel when we love him, but also because he changes us into more loving beings, we, uh, our capacity to love is increased over time. I can remember uh, feeling like when I got married uh, that I loved my wife uh, as much as you could love a person. And now I feel like that was, I I, I barely knew what love meant, right? Uh, Being married to her for a long time, having children, those things increase your capacity to love so that you recognize that the love you felt, uh, as much as I was in love at the altar uh, when we got married, I don't think I had the capacity to love like I do now, and, and I, f- I feel like I was kind of a foolish teenager almost, even though I was 26, but uh, I feel like I was a foolish teenager pre- pretending to know what God, what love meant. And I suspect that another 20 or 30 years from now, I'll look back on, on how I feel right now and say, yeah, you didn't really know what love meant. I, I, God increases our capacity to love, and that includes our capacity to love Him.
1: You know, Carrie, I'm taken as we study this Shema Yisrael that you just quoted in Hebrew a couple of minutes ago, um, I love how the Jews really reverence the the true name of God, and so much so that they they really won't even say it. I mean, the, the real Orthodox Jews won't say the name, but it kind of reminds me of in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, when we learn the true name of the priesthood, Uh, Before the day of Melchizedek, it was called the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. But out of respect or reverence, this is, of course, in section 107, verses 3 and 4, out of respect or reverence to the name of the supreme being to avoid the too frequent repetition of his name, they, the church in ancient days, called that priesthood after Melchizedek. So it was really just, uh, it really is the priesthood (laughs) you know, after the order of the Son of God, this most holy name. And I just think that's fascinating to me, to have this holy name, because we live in a world where holiness is not really brought to the fore anymore. You know, what what is holy? And in the church of Jesus Christ, we use the word holy a lot, and we go into the temple, and we cross under a place where it says holiness to the Lord, and I just I love the reverence of holiness, yeah, I agree. Well, and and like you say, the reverence of holiness
2: and the reverence of that name. Uh, and it, we we live in a day where th- that any of the names for deity are taken so slightly and used so whimsically and without thought, and and to a lesser degree, but still to some degree, by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, I always remember a verse in the Doctrine and Covenants, so I can't remember where it is, but I remember it, the impact it had on me when I read it, where he said, Beware how you take my name on your lips. Uh, and, and the idea was, don't take it in, in emptiness or vanity. And so, like for myself, you'll find that I almost always refer to the Savior as the Savior or one of his other names, and I don't use the name Jesus without stopping and thinking about it. I, I don't, And I have lots of friends who teach about the Savior who uh, just use that name just so quickly and all of the time, uh, and, and I am not going to assume that they aren't stopping to think about the Savior, but I know that for me, I can't, I can't do it that quickly with the reverence that I want to do it, and, and so I'm very careful how I use that name, uh, either Jehovah uh, or Jesus are names that I take very seriously.
1: Well, and I was taught by a friend of ours who's a sealer in the temple, in our local temple here, Mount Timpanogos Temple. He said that he feels the same way of what you just described, and to the point where, and I've never forgotten this, because he said even when we're saying blessings on the food, he pauses a little bit bef- before he ends a blessing by saying in the name of, of jesus christ amen i mean there's just that little pause and it's a pause of reverence and i i have never forgotten that and i changed the way i pray yeah yeah i've had that that same effect
2: it was elder gene r cook that that pointed that verse out to me and and gave me those ideas i can't uh uh take credit for that myself but uh, it's 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 changed my reverence for the name as well
0: I love that the Jewish people have the mezuzahs at their door that have these very verses rolled up inside of them so that as they come and as they go, the name of the Lord and these, this idea about God being one God and loving Him with all our heart, soul, and might is always with them. And the same thing with their phylacteries that they weigh, the little frontlets, little boxes on their forehead when they um, pray, and then down their left arm. Um, I, I think it's really a reminder that we all need to have that name and that blessing with us all the time, that God is with us all the time. We need to be reminded of that, and as we love him more, we feel that more.
2: I could not agree more, and if, if we just were to read the next couple of verses, I think it will highlight how much God thinks we do need to be reminded of this. So, again, remember that these two most important verses are verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Now listen to what he says. And these words, which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart. He, he's telling us, you've got to have this in your heart. You can't just say these words it has to sink down into who you are and then look at this and thou shalt teach them now the, the hebrew word there is is uh, the word you use for sharpen or to, to wet your your sword or sharpen your blade you're going to sharpen your children is what he's saying but but the, i mean i think the idea is teach i think it's a good translation but let's keep in mind that connotation that we're we're, we're sharpening we're making our children the, the kind of sharp people they need to be Um, diligently, so thou shalt sharpen them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. This is that idea we get in the Book of Mormon, the importance of teaching the rising generation. He's telling them, this idea that you love God And only God, and more than anything else, you need to be constantly talking about it. Whenever you sit down, whenever you're getting up in the morning, whenever you're laying down at night, whatever you're doing, you have to be doing this to remember them. And um, then we get verse 8 and 9, "...and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes." Now this is taken very literally by Jews, that's where you get the, the phylacteries that you're talking about, or tefillin, where these verses are written, and they're placed in a little box, and you strap them on your head or on your arms. And then we get verse uh, 9, "...and thou shalt write them upon the, the posts of thy house." And on thy gates, that's the mezuzah, that little thing that where these these same verses are written, and they're post, uh, posted there on the the doorpost, and they're posted in a little um, uh, box that has on it the letter Sheen, which is the letter the first letter in Shema, So Shema yisrael, right? The, the, so it's it's so that even when they see it, they remember that they're supposed to hear and listen to this and be reminded that more than anything else as their primary defining identity they are someone that loves the lord and that's one of the great themes of the book of deuteronomy is to remember remember what god has done for us now i find this really interesting and one day i'll have to do an actual like um study where a statistical study but uh, it, even when I was on my mission I got the sense if you were to just go through the book of mormon and, and just list themes and the number of times something is talked about the first theme is Jesus Christ that that's talked about and and his atoning sacrifice that's talked about more than anything else the next one I would say is the covenant with Israel and the next one is to remember and what are you supposed to remember Jesus Christ and the covenant with Israel but the the that's what god wants us in the book of mormon or the the old testament and really the book of mormon is i think heavily influenced by the book of deuteronomy but uh in in either of those books you will find one of the major themes is to remember what god has done for us and remember to love him Uh, and the more things we can do to help ourselves remember that Wherever we go, whatever we do, if you have to put a mezuzah up, or if it's a picture of Christ for you, or whatever it is, have a hundred things to remind you throughout the day to stop from your busyness and think about the Lord for a minute. What a difference that would make in our lives!
0: And it becomes natural over time. It does become your conversation because it's your favorite thing to talk about. Yeah, something that you just learned in Scripture becomes your favorite thing to talk about. Scott and I talk endlessly about this because we love it so much. And it's bonding between us. We are bonded by this love for the Lord. Let us go on to these verses that are 10 through 14, and I'll just read a little bit of that. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee unto the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not. And houses full of all good things, which thou fillest not, and wells dig, which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full. So the Lord is going to be an abundant giver even more than what we have possibly earned. There's no way we can earn his gifts. He's just going to give them to us. And I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, uh, I I think it's, now there's an interesting element of this here because he's bringing them into a place where someone else has done that, Uh, but it's emblematic of the idea that he will provide for us, whether it be through someone else or through miracles that he brings about or whatever, whatever it is, he will provide for us things that are beyond what we have done or are capable of doing. Uh, he, and th- this is the, the great theme of Deuteronomy is the blessings that come from keeping covenant. Uh, and, of course, it starts out here with our obligation in the covenant to love God. But the great theme is the blessings that come from keeping covenant and the importance of remembering that. So, in fact, if you'd gone to that, that next verse, uh, after you've gotten all these things that you didn't earn and that are beyond uh, what you can do, and, and that's the thing we have to remember. There are so many ways that applies to our life, that we don't earn the blessings that we receive, we won't earn exaltation, we don't deserve them, uh, and we shouldn't feel bad about that. God's happy to give it to us even though we we haven't earned it and don't deserve it, just like uh, my uh, grandson shouldn't feel bad when I give him a gift that he didn't earn it or deserve it, right? I, it, he shouldn't feel bad about that. I'm giving it to him because I love him, and I want to, but um but we should remember that they come because not because of our own greatness but because of God's greatness and you'll see there in verse 12 then beware lest thou forget the lord which brought thee forth out of the land of egypt from the house of bondage so it's that remembering thing again and and this brings us to a really really important element of the book of deuteronomy and of the covenant in general and uh, it, we'll, we'll understand it best if we also think of some of the, the chapters that we're supposed to read and a few that they didn't have us read. But if, if you were to read chapter 28 through 30, it's one of the best summations of the covenant anywhere in Scripture. I'd say Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 through 30, which basically go over the same things. There's this fantastic summation of the beautiful, amazing, marvelous blessings that come to us when we keep the covenant. But in each case, in the Leviticus iteration and in the Deuteronomic iteration, we get not just the blessings of the covenant, but the and the phrase they use is the cursings, we could call it kind of the natural consequences, that come when you break the covenant. So when you, when you make the covenant, you've left neutral ground forever. You can no longer just be kind of in the middle You either keep the covenant and you get these amazing, amazing blessings, wells which you didn't dig and trees which you didn't plant, or you get the opposite of it. The water's going to dry up and the trees are going to die and no fruit's going to come and no rain's going to come and nothing grows. You don't get anything in the middle. You get either the great blessing or the complete lack of that blessing, not just a a lack like a, a negative space for that blessing, right? It goes the opposite way. And, and this there's a reason for this. It's not just because God is mad or something like that. It's because that's the tool that God uses to remind us that the blessings weren't because we're so great. The blessings were because we kept a covenant and he gave them to us. And so he set up in the covenant a cycle or a pattern. And we'll see this cycle or pattern all over the place. In the Book of Mormon, we call it the pride cycle. In, say, the Book of Judges, we'll call it, or the Old Testament in general, we can call it the idolatry cycle. But but what it really is, is it's a covenant uh, cycle, or we could call it a covenant corruption cycle, where when we keep the covenant, we are blessed abundantly. But as soon as we forget that those blessings come from God, and we think that they come because we're so great— Then we are humbled, and the form of that humbling is the covenant cursings, or the reversal of covenant blessings. And when we're humbled and to the point where we finally remember God, then we'll start to keep the covenant again, and we'll start to get those blessings again. And so this covenant corruption cycle, we'll see it everywhere in Scripture, and each culture has their own little uh, difficulty that they struggle with. So Book of Mormon, it's pride in clothing and apparel and in their own ideas. In the Old Testament, it's it's, uh, turning to idols and so on. But it's the same cycle uh, with the same kind of idolatry. You just change what your idol is, and it all revolves around whether you remember God and keep your covenant, or you forget God and don't keep your covenant.
1: You know, every time we go to Egypt... I think about this because, as you well know, Carrie, one of the big water bottle companies, now it sounds like I'm going off track here, but I'm not, the name of the company is Barakah, and that Mm -hmm. means blessing. And so Mm -hmm. every time I drink one of those bottles of Barakah, I just think, ah, this is the blessing. And then there's the the other side of that, I think if I pronounce it right, is uh, Kalalah or Galalah is the cursings. And so there's... I always mm-hmm. think about barakah and galala because I I want to have that barakah when I'm thirsty and I just need that water. I I just think of the blessings that the Lord has for us. And
2: and the the dichotomy that you just set up there is beautiful and perfect and it's exactly what God wants. So he has uh moses do this and then joshua will do it later where you get half of israel on one place and half on the other side and one side recites the blessings you get from keeping the covenant and the other side recites the cursings that you get when you break the covenant and god wants you to think of it in those terms i'm going to bless you like crazy beyond measure uh with things that are beyond your capacity if you keep the covenant and you get the opposite when you don't and so I, i love the way you you thought of that let's have uh Uh, Keep in mind our blessings and the uh, compentuate uh, cursings if we don't keep the covenant.
0: I think what's interesting about that, in my mind, it's not that God curses them by sending bad things. It is, like you say, the natural consequences of having His Spirit withdrawn. Because the Spirit is an organizing Spirit. The Spirit brings harmony and love and understanding And, of course, when those things are withdrawn from us, cut off from us, then everything changes. Everything is different. So I I think it's tempting for people to read these chapters and think that God is cursing them. But, in fact, he's just letting them curse themselves because he's withdrawn.
2: I I think you're right. Most, or maybe at least much, of what happens is the natural result of losing that spirit and those blessings. But I think there is an element that God will specifically humble us. He will find the individual tutoring that we each need, and if that means bringing some tough things into our lives, he'll do it. He, he is determined to bring us back into the covenant. And if that's, uh, I often say, we can have him bring us back the easy way or the hard way. And uh, if it takes the hard way, I think God will do it that way. Uh, so sometimes I think it, it does get... Uh, to where he's bringing specific difficulties to us, uh, at least that we see that with Israel as a whole, where he says, okay, well, uh, and in some ways it's natural, and in some ways it's not. Now I'll bring Assyria on you. And then naturally what happens is if I'm not helping you, y- you lose. Uh, you, you don't win this battle without me. So that's the natural thing, but I think he did kind of bring Assyria, right? So uh, you, you'll see some of both in this way that God works with us as he tries to bring us back to him.
0: It reminds me of C.S. Lewis writing the Narnia Tales, and he made the Christ figure, Aslan the lion, because he said God was always stalking him until he would turn and discover who he was. And I, I think that these covenant cursings are that very thing. It's the Lord calling to us and turning our head another way because we can see what a mess we make of things without him or we understand that a trial cannot be solved without his help. So it's, it's a kindness to us.
2: I agree, and, and to use that same idea it's in the same story, uh, one of the phrases that stands out the most to me from the Narnia series is when they say, Aslan is not a tame lion. Right. You don't control him, and uh, this, he, he could turn on you. If you aren't doing things the right way, this, he could turn on you. you. You should be careful.
1: He is not a tame lion. I do love that. Now, let's get into Deuteronomy 7 for just a minute, because our time just goes so quickly when we're together like this. We're having so much fun, but in Deuteronomy 7... In those first couple of verses, it says, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, this is the promised land that had been given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by covenant, and hath cast out many nations before thee. So there's seven nations that they're going to go into, and greater and mightier than they are. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor shew mercy unto them. And so that's an interesting thing, because generally we go into nations and preach the gospel. (laughs) And uh, we're supposed to gather them into the fold. And this is an interesting view, as the Lord brings them into the Promised Land, he says, you're going to have to destroy all these nations. What does that mean to us, and how do we understand this now?
2: And there there are so many elements to that, and and they're all worth exploring. So let's touch on at least several... for at least a moment, we could go into all of them really in depth. But one of the things we have to remember is that uh, they have had the gospel being preached to them. We, we don't usually think of that, and we wouldn't know much about it, but we get two really good clues. One is that Abraham is told that his uh, seed will have to be in Egypt for 400 years because the Canaanites, are, or the land is not ready for them, that the land is still the Canaanites' land. Um, and then we couple that with what Nephi teaches us in First Nephi 17, when he says that the Canaanites had rejected every uh, word of God that had been preached to them and that they hadn't repented when they'd been given the opportunity. And you put those two things together, and you get the idea that, well, first of all, we know that Abraham was there, and that he taught the gospel to at least some people. He, he had converts and so on. Uh, but you get the idea that they're more than Abraham, that for 400 years they're given the chance to repent. Right, so the gospel is preached to them for twice as long as the, uh, the gospel's been in this generation. Right, We just celebrated 200 years since the first vision. Uh, that's, they had this opportunity for twice as long and had completely and fully rejected it. So let's keep that in mind, that they, uh, they have had opportunity and they have not accepted that opportunity. They have very much rejected it. So the gospel was preached to them. That's important to keep in mind. Second, we need to remember, and we we talked about this a little bit uh, when we we talked about um, uh, the tribe of Levi and uh, some of the destruction that happened when they built the golden calf, but let's remember that their destruction, while it seems like a huge deal to us, and it it is, I don't want to make light of of death. Um, For mortals, this is a big deal, but from God's perspective, being removed from this life and taken to the next life is just stepping from one room to the other. It's, this is not uh, such a big thing. You're just putting them in another place where God will continue to work with them, as, as we talked about before. But the, the last thing to remember, and this is really important, and this is what God is emphasizing in chapter 7, and it is, you cannot have anything in your life or your culture that will lead you away from me. Get rid of all of it. The way that that Moroni would say it is strip yourself of all ungodliness. You have to get rid of everything. This is a huge theme in the scriptures. The way the Savior would put it is, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand is a problem, cut it off. Or leave your father and your mother if you have to. Leave behind what Ever you have to leave behind, anything that is leading you away from God will be to your detriment. You have to completely and fully purge it from your life. Isaiah, this is a huge theme in Isaiah, leave Babylon behind. I love how Elder Maxwell talked about how we like to leave Babylon behind as long as we can keep a summer cottage there. right? We, we want to go We want to be there a little bit every now and then, and that's the natural man in us. We like our sins. We have our favorite sins. The reason we're sinning is because we like it, and it's pleasing to the carnal side of us, but we have to get rid of that and say, I'm going to have nothing to do with ungodliness. Now, we're going to need God's help to do that, just like Israel will need God's help. They have all these people in the promised land, that if they intermingle with them in any way, will lead them to idolatry. And, and God says you have to completely get rid of everything that would lead you to idolatry. The only way they could ever do that is with God's help. And, uh, and when they turn to God, he does help them. But they don't do this fully, and it turns out God is right. These nations that they don't fully get rid of lead them to idolatry. It, it takes them to the, exactly where God said it would and, and takes them away from the covenant and away from him and gives them the same problems that the Canaanites were having. So we have to remember that it's with God's help and only with God's help that we can get these things out of our lives, but we have to completely get them out of our lives. And, uh, and again, while that sounds harsh when we're talking about people, Right? You have to get these people out of your... And the Savior says that sometimes. If you have to cut these people out of your lives, cut them out of your lives, if that's what it takes to not be um, uh, unholy. Now, that doesn't mean, for example, um, let's say that, that you have a, a sibling who has made choices that are different than, than yours. We can still love them and try to bring them back, but if that person is leading us to sin, then we need to, to cut that off. If we can lead them to goodness, then we don't cut that off, right? That's that's the difference. But in this case, the, God knew these people were going to lead them to sin. and uh, And again, when we're talking about people, this sounds so harsh, but we have to remember that in God's timetable and in the eternities, these people being removed from mortality and sent to the spirit world just meant that they were being given a chance to be preached to by some better and more powerful missionaries that had a better chance of working with them. And that's really all it means from God's perspective. While for us it seems like such a big deal because the spirit world is something we're not overly familiar with.
0: And yet we know that at the time of the flood, um, Enoch saw a vision of the Lord weeping, weeping for the wickedness of his children and weeping for their destruction. So I, I don't think he takes it lightly either. I think it's a, a very painful thing, even for God, to see this happen.
2: And as a parent, um, I, I think we can identify with that. When I was a child, and sometimes my, I'd get punished, uh, it turns out I wasn't always perfect. And so, uh, well, I'm still not, but uh, you know, sometimes I was punished, and my parents— I can remember them saying, this hurts me more than it hurts you, and I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard anyone say. And then as a parent, it, I realized it is absolutely true. I Like when I've had to say to my children, sorry, you can't go do this thing that you really wanted to do because you didn't, you didn't behave correctly, I think I honestly do feel worse about their not being able to do that than they do. In fact, I was just talking with uh, my, my oldest son uh, the other day about a time where he really wanted to do something, and I had to tell him he couldn't, and, uh, and we left without him, and he, and he didn't do it. And it still pains me to that this day to think about it. He doesn't remember it at all like gone from his memory it was not that big of a deal but i think about it all the time it it still causes me pain to think about when i had to leave him behind um and and so i think you're right this is this is difficult for god but it's what is best for the canaanites and it's what is best for the israelites it's best for both and so he does it on this large scale rather than thinking of it in the short term which is what we had to do as parents is think of the long term when we punished our children not the short term
1: it reminds me of when the children of Israel were at the Red Sea and they've crossed the Red Sea and then the seas close up on the Egyptians. And there's an apocryphal work that says that the angels in heaven were rejoicing because kind of the Lord you know, socked it to them and, and took out the whole army. And, and he, in this apocryphal work, it said that he silenced them and said, these are my children too. You know, so he doesn't just do this lightly. But like you say, Carrie, for him, death is not death. I mean, it's like Wendy Nelson said, you know, our ancestors do not they are anything but dead. They do not like to be called dead. They are very, very much alive.
0: The reference she made to Abraham being told that the land of Canaan was the promised land. But it wouldn't be theirs until the fourth generation, because what is said in Genesis is because God had to wait until the iniquity of the Amorites was full and it was not yet full and I think that is interesting because it suggests also that children couldn't have grown up there spirits sent to earth couldn't have grown up there with any chance to choose the Lord and I think that that is an act of generosity not an act of terror
2: I agree. It's, and we can compare it to that idea of the flood, that this is an act of mercy, that children didn't have to come down into this terrible situation. And so I kind of read that to mean I, I, I'm going to work with them until it's clear that no one is going to listen and no change is going to happen. And then we put them in a different room where we work with them there. You know, We send them to their room, give them a while to cool off, and we'll try again, is, is how I read that idea that their, their
1: wickedness is not full. Thank you all for joining us today. This has been a delightful time together with you, our wonderful listeners, and with Dr. Carrie Muelstein. This is Scott and Maureen Proctor. And next week we'll be studying Joshua chapters 1 through 8 and chapters 23 to 24 in a lesson called Be Strong and of a Good Courage. That comes from one of our favorite scriptures that we've memorized. We thank Paul Cardall for the wonderful music that he provides that accompanies this podcast. And also we're grateful to our producer, Michaela Proctor Hutchins. Have a wonderful week and we will see you next time.